Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today James M. Hamilton, Jr. He is professor of biblical theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church. He's author of God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment, one book, and another, What is Biblical Theology? His new book is a handsome two-volume study of the Psalms, and that is our topic today. Welcome, Professor and Pastor Hamilton. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. All right. First of all, your 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 second the second book I mentioned, and also this comes up in the study of the Psalms. What early on? What is biblical theology? So I argue that what we're trying to do when we do biblical theology is understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. To put this more straightforwardly, we're trying to get at the worldview from which the biblical authors operated. So we want to understand the way that they saw the world and the way that they interpreted earlier scripture, the later biblical authors, and then the way that they applied that worldview in what they wrote and how they dealt with their own personal situations. And so uh, this interpretive perspective or worldview is going to entail the big story in which they see themselves that you might say the meta narrative or the master story and how they derive truths from that story, how they understand certain behaviors to comport with or be in, in contradiction to that story. And so what they're encouraging or discouraging and then um, how their responses of worship flows out of um, or, or, or arise, how worship arises from, uh, their response to that big story. And then where you have a group of people who consider this to be normal, you have a culture. So my, my view is that all of the biblical authors, they had a shared worldview and they participated in a common culture that was, was uh, agreed upon and, and embraced by uh, the, the believing, believing remnant um, through the Old Testament period and into the New. Mm-hmm. Now, w- when you say the, the worldview, we're talking about a very distant time, and that raises that heavy hermeneutical burden that really requires an intense immersion, right? In, in the words, right. in the idea, all the historical evidence that you can assemble, and then adding to that a real act of imagination, Right, you have to imagine something yes. much different without even realizing. And it's like the air you breathe, right? We take so yeah. many things yeah. of our own, you know, epistemic outlook for granted. They have a different one. 
what, what are some of the things that one has to do in order to bridge that, that hermeneutical gap? Well, I think if we're trying to get at the worldview or the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors, the single most important thing that we must do is read the Bible a lot or perhaps hear the Bible a lot. So, you know, we have all these ways today to have uh, somebody on our phone, an audiobook or something like this, uh, uh, read to us as we're as we're going from place to place. But as we as we uh, imbibe the Bible, I think that these questions of why are they thinking about it this way or why are they describing it this way, they naturally present themselves to us. And, and often the things that, that initially, at least, we might find to be disturbing, those are the things that are going to take us to um, the differences between the worldview of the biblical authors and the worldview that we assume or the, the worldview that we think is natural and, and normal. So that means, uh, for instance, I, 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 yeah, go ahead. So in, just concretely, you've got to know a few languages, right? <laughs> I mean, well, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's most helpful if you can access the biblical text in the original, in Greek and Hebrew, because there are definitely places where the biblical author or the uh, translators have smoothed things out. And, and you know, all languages, um, th there are connotations to words and and maybe double meanings and these sorts of things. And it's very hard to preserve and, and uh, bring that, that kind of thing over from Hebrew, let's say, into English. Yeah. And you, you, in, in your exegesis here, you, you do a lot of translation work yourself. Yes. And one of the reasons that I wanted to translate, I wanted to present a very literal translation of the whole Psalter is because there are these link words that, that will join one psalm to the next and perhaps to the next. So you'll have all these this common terminology that's shared by psalms that are neighbors with one another. And I think that all of that shared terminology um, is, is there to lead us to the conclusion that all these psalms are, are treating related ideas and, and they're all arising out of a related situation. Yeah. Yeah. And and that sometimes you might lose those verbal echoes connections with with the translation. Not not intentionally yeah. by the translator, but it just sort of happens as you move from one language to another. That's right. And you know, one of the one of the values of English composition is stylistic variation. And that that stylistic variation wasn't a value for for the ancient Hebrew poets. So, for instance, in Psalm 5, 5, um, the, the English Standard Version renders the last statement of the verse, you hate all evildoers. And you have this Hebrew phrase there, poale aven, which could mean some, you know, you could render it literally doers of evil. So they render it evildoers in 5, 5. You have the exact same phrase in Psalm 6, 8, and there they render it workers of evil. So you have evildoers in one place, workers of evil in, in the other place, but it's the very same Hebrew expression. When it's not translated the same way, the reader, yeah, yeah, the reader is not shown the continuity and, and the repetition. Hmm. Now, you, you, you have a nice introduction laying out the themes, and one of the first things you say there is that you rank the Psalms just as, as poetry, you rank it right up there, or even surpassing uh, Homer, Virgil, 
Dante, Shakespeare. I, I do too. I put the Psalms right up there my, myself. But tell, tell us what, what I mean. Just to speak personally for a moment, what do you what do you sure. what do you savor about the Psalms as an expression? Well, sure. I, I think that the the glorious uh, beauty of the Psalter is the way that it tells us true statements like Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is in contrast with um, other statements in the Psalms that speak of those uh, to whom, like for instance, in, in Psalm 36, verse one, it says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in, its, in his heart. And so as we, as we read the Psalms, this affectional reality, the way that, that people who know God delight in knowing God and, and actually experience his glory and beauty and majesty and want to respond to him with praise. In contrast, uh, people who love sin uh, transgression speaks to them and resonates with them, and they delight in doing evil. And so you really have this, this, these two paths that are, that are laid out for you, and it's as though the psalmists are wooing you to the right path, and they're, they're continually saying to you, as, as is stated in Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, uh, actually Psalm 1 at the end of Psalm 1, the way of the wicked will perish, and then Psalm 2 uh, the wicked are going to perish in the way. And so the Psalter is telling us the truth about where where real delight is. And, and it's telling us the truth about what God is really doing in the world. Yeah, I, I like that. Transgression speaks to them. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think that's a very, very good way of, of, of putting it with the, with the nature of, of, of sin. And, trans- mm-hmm. and transgression to, to that guy. anyway anyway so now you wish to see that the Psalms really is united as one book correct yes yes that's exactly right and, and I think that um, yeah go ahead well if if they're going to be united then is it is it themes that unite them is it sort of the an overarching narrator poet uh, personality that they what, what are the principles of unification I should say yes great question so um, there are these editorial features of the Psalter uh, like the doxologies so if you if you look at an English translation of the Psalms you'll have the, the 150 Psalms divided into five books and at the and this is not an imposition on the text this is an ancient um, division. I think it's original to, um, I think ultimately the idea goes back to David, and then whoever put the Psalter, those who added Psalms and whoever put the Psalter into its final canonical form, I think that uh, those people, they, uh, they, they're carrying forward the project that David started. There's a, I think an, analogous, an analog, analogy to this is the, uh, I believe there's a, a basilica in Barcelona that was uh, started by an architect, I believe his name is Gaudi, and um, even though he died, like in the 1920s or something like this, and even though the the basilica is still under construction, 
it's still regarded as his work because he he laid out the the vision for it and and the framework and then everyone else is just completing his project and i think that uh, the most natural understanding of the psalter is that it was david's project and he laid out the vision for it and then other people caught that vision and um and completed it for him and so at the end of each of the five books you have a doxology um, and they all in all all the doxologies include um blessed and it's this hebrew term baruch be yahweh and then some kind of way of saying forever and then amen and then after um, those doxologies at the beginning of the next book you have a change in ascription of authorship so like book one is psalms 1 through 41 and 37 of those 41 psalms are attributed to david and the four that are not attributed to david have no superscription and then the next psalm psalm 42 is, is a psalm of the sons of korah so there's a change in ascription as to who wrote the psalm and then book two is psalms 42 through 72 and again at, at the end of book two end of psalm 72 you have a um, um, a doxology and then book three opens and it's a psalm of asaph so this happens at each of the the seams of the psalter where the book will end with a doxology and then it will open with a new author so i think those features those consistent features point to a kind of uh, unified editorial strategy uh, accomplished by whoever put the book into its final form and then earlier i mentioned these um these link words that will tie psalms together and just as an example of this um, psalm 1 begins blessed is the man and um and it so it starts with this blessed individual and i think the psalms work the way that don mclean's psalm song american pie works and that is that as you listen to the verses and continue through the psalm or through the song you, gaps of infor, gaps in your information are filled in so that a, a broader picture develops as you continue through so i think when we get to psalm 2 we we are led to the conclusion that the blessed man of Psalm one is the Lord's anointed who is, who is being opposed in Psalm two, verse two. And then at the end of, of uh, Psalm two, we read blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so you've got blessed is the man that opens Psalm one and then blessed are all who take refuge in him in Psalm two. And there are, there are many other points of contact between Psalms one and two. So these link words join the Psalms together and then um, the superscriptions and their distribution uh, throughout the Psalter, I think, also contribute to the idea that you've got a unified book. So um, uh, just, to, just to make one observation about the distribution of these superscriptions, there are 13, you know, sometimes you read the Psalms and if you're not really paying attention, you're just sort of floating through, you might think these historical notices, they're all over the place. Like, and what I have in mind is, uh, Psalm 3, verse 1, or the superscription, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We might come away with the impression that you have just lots and lots of these, but actually there are only 13 of those historical notices, um, you know, locating a psalm at, at a certain point in the biblical narrative. And 12 of those 13 are in books 1 and 2. There's only one 
in the rest of the Psalter, and it's over in book five, and it's a very short notice. It simply says it, when he was in the cave. Um, so, so when you combine the idea that 12 of the 13 of these are in books one and two with the statement that concludes book two at, at the end of Psalm 72, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Uh, and, and then there's the, the number of Psalms attributed to David in book one. I mentioned there were 37 of the 41. In book two, 18 of the 31 Psalms are attributed to David. In book three, there's only one Psalm attributed to David. So it's almost like David is gone after Psalm 72. And I think it creates the impression that in books one and two, we're really dealing with the life of the historical David. And then when we get to book three, after, after Psalm 72, which was a prayer of Solomon, it's as though David has come to the end of his life. He's praying this prayer for Solomon, and then he's going to uh, – we're going to read this notice at the end of Psalm 72 that the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And then it's like he hands off the kingdom, and, and in book three, we're dealing with the line of kings that descends from David, and that ends in Psalm 89 in what looks like exile from the land and, and the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And then in book four, um, it's, it's as though Moses, Psalm 90, the first psalm in book three uh, – I'm sorry, first psalm in book four is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And um, he's praying the same thing that he prayed in Exodus 32. So Exodus 32, the people of Israel have made the golden calf. The Lord threatens to destroy them and start over with Moses. And Moses prays, turn, O Lord, and have pity or relent. And in Psalm 90, verse 13, he prays, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Exact same Hebrew words in Psalm 90, verse 13 as in Exodus 32, 12 through 14. And so it's as though Moses is interceding on behalf of the Davidic covenant, which in Psalm 89, you know, the psalmist has said in verse 38, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. It's as though the Lord has come to a place where he said, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy the house of David and start over with something new. But then Moses intercedes, and I think that um, in view of what we see both in book four and in book five, the intercession of Moses in Psalm 90 is as effective as the intercession of Moses in Exodus 32 and in um, Numbers 14 when on both occasions um, the Lord did relent, and he didn't destroy the people of Israel and start over with Moses. Um, and then at the end of um, at the end of book four, at the end of Psalm 106 in verse 47, the psalmist prays, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. And then at the beginning of book five in verse three, it's or verses two and three, it's let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. So Psalm 107 sounds as though they've experienced the prophesied new exodus and return from exile. And uh, that takes us right up to Psalm 110, where we have this, this celebration of the conquest of David's Lord, the future king from David's line. 
And then the, the Psalms that follow that, 111 through 117, are the Hallel Psalms. It's, all, it's as though the, the triumph of the Davidic king in Psalm 110 is celebrated in Psalms 111 through 117. In 118, the king enters the city in triumph, and uh, the people are blessing him from the house of the Lord. And he's saying, reminiscent of Psalm, Psalm 24, you know, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors. Uh, he, the king says in Psalm 118, verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So it's like the king of Israel has returned to the city in triumph, and he's entering the city to establish the kingdom. And then you've got Psalm 119, which celebrates God's word as God's good way and God's good instruction for his people to live on. And then uh, Psalms 120 through 134 are the Psalms of ascents. And uh, that word rendered ascents is the same term used at the end of Chronicles when, when uh, the Persian king announces anyone who wa wants to return to Jerusalem, let him go up. So you could, you could call these the Psalms of the goings up. And it's as though it's as though the word of the Lord, to think in terms of Isaiah 2, the word of the Lord has gone forth from Jerusalem in Psalm 119, and the nations are streaming home to Zion in uh, Psalm, Psalms 120 through uh, 134. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, 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 you brought up blessed a few times, and you cite Gregory, uh, Nisa, who saw the goal of the mm -hmm. Psalter, is precisely blessedness. You, you agree on this then? Yes. This is the ultimate, well, blessedness. Yes, so Gregory, Gregory took this in a spiritual way where uh, he's taking the Psalms, as I am, to be read in sequence to lead to uh, the, the blessedness of, of life with God. And in a way, I'm saying the same thing. I'm just, I'm just locating it more in salvation historical or biblical theological terms. And, and you know, as, we've, as I've just been sort of tracing through the flow of thought in the Psalms, this is going to culminate in Psalms 146 through 150, which are this explosion of praise, this eruption of worship. And if we ask ourselves, what would prompt the kinds of statements that we read in Psalms 146 through 150, I think the, the answer that, that we eventually arrive at is nothing less than the salvation of the world, nothing less than the accomplishment of all of God's purposes, which is going to include, um, you know, Revelation, at the end of Revelation, it says, um, the dwelling of God will be with man, and and they will see his face, you know, and so in, in many ways, that's, that's pretty much what Gregory was, was talking about. 
he was just, I think, doing it more spiritually, uh, and I'm I'm kind of doing it more salvation historically and biblical theologically. Yeah, you know, you you know that the the Hebrew title of the Psalms is praises. What does that indicate? Yes. Well, so um, earlier we were talking about the master story and the way that that worship arises in response to the master story. So, so often in the Psalms, the psalmists are praising God for creation. We can think of Psalm 8, Psalm 19, and so forth. And, and then also, very often in the Psalms, the psalmists are celebrating the work of redemption that, that, that God did for his people at the exodus from Egypt. And I think often they're pointing forward to that new, the hoped for, longed for new exodus and return from exile that will have God's people dwelling in God's presence forever. And so the praises, I think, should be understood as direct responses to the narrative of Israel's history, which is a forward-pointing narrative that is, that is looking forward to the future salvation that God is going to accomplish for his people. So in the same way that in our culture, people write songs about what they love or they write songs about what they want to celebrate, uh, what they want to indulge in. Uh, so also the psalmists are, they're writing these songs about what they love and what they love is God and what God has done in creation and redemption. And, and that's what they're talking about. So I think the praises, praises should be understood in response to um, the work of God that's recorded in in scripture. Yeah. Let, let, let me step out of the Psalms for a moment. Uh, where do you see the Psalms fitting in the Bible as a whole? Is there is there some logical or causal connection between books before and books after? Well, so if, if you take the books in the order that they're in in the Hebrew Bible, and the arrangement there is you have, of course, the Torah of Moses, and then you have the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and the prophets are divided into two groups, uh, the former prophets, which are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and then the latter prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. Once we get to Isaiah, we've gotten to, it's, it's more poetic. So from, from the beginning of the Torah, Genesis, through the end of Kings, it's all narrative, and then you hit Isaiah, and, and you enter into more poetic um, material. And I, I agree with Stephen Dempster, who argues that what we have in, in uh, the latter prophets, beginning with Isaiah and continuing through the writings, which is where we find the Psalms, what we have is poetic commentary on the narrative. So that these are reflections on and responses to what has been narrated in Genesis through Kings and in the Psalms in particular, it's as though we're being taught how to worship God, how to give thanks and praise to God uh, for his work in creation and redemption and uh, what he's promised to do for his people in the future. Okay. Yeah. You know, let, let me go to, let, let's come back into the Psalms. Uh, you know, I love Psalm 14. The fool mm -hmm. says in his heart, there is no God. They despoil, they do abominable work, there is no one who does good. Uh, what, is your, what is your commentary on those, 
on those. Give us a specimen of your commentary on those lines. Sure. So I think that if we read these statements in context, um, what we have is someone who is really illustrating for us what was spoken about in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And now it's like we're being shown the rationale. These fools, they think there's no God who's going to vindicate the king of Israel. There's no God who's going to bring about some Messiah. There's no God who's going to punish this standard of, of, right, of wickedness that that these Bible people are talking about, and, and as a result, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. So um, I would understand Psalm 14 to be giving us the perspective, in particular, of the enemies of the Messiah, the, the people who have rejected the idea that the king of Israel is the rightful king of the world. And I... I don't believe there is any more reference to atheism. I mean, this is it. It's simple. This is what the fool says, and we're not going to spend a lot of time discussing it. We're, we're going to move. <laughs> is that is that the way we look at this? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you ha you have this parallel psalm in Psalm fifty three, where the almost word for word, um, Psalm fifty three parallels Psalm fourteen. The two psalms. There, there are just very slight modifications uh, between them, and um, I think that, that both of these psalms, you know, after Psalm 2, you get that Psalm, Psalm 3, which is when he fled from Absalom, his son, and so it's almost as though Psalm 14 is telling us Absalom's perspective. You know, Absalom, I think, would have thought, well, Yahweh is not going to vindicate David, and there, please, there's no God. He's not going to punish me. But Absalom is doing something that's very satanic. He's, he's not only trying to take the kingdom from his own father, he's trying to take the kingdom of God from his own father. So this is just really heinous what he's doing. And then similarly, um, Psalm 53 follows Psalm 52, which is superscripted, a mosquil of David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So You'll remember that Doeg the Edomite is the guy that went and struck down the priests, slaughtered all these priests because they had aided David in his flight from Saul. And so I think the Psalter is telling us this is the way that Absalom was thinking, and this is the way that people like Saul and Doeg, this is what they were thinking, uh, that God was not going to vindicate David and punish them for their wrongdoing. It's a rejection of, of, of the theological claims that undergird the ethical requirements to bow the knee to the king who's been anointed by Yahweh. Yeah. Do, do you, uh, last question, uh, Professor Hamilton, do you like the routine of reading one or two psalms a night, or should we try to be more, go through longer, longer pieces? Because well, I, I, I'm asking this for a personal question. Sure. I think that um, any way that we can access the Psalms is beneficial. So in our family, um, there have been seasons where we will we'll all gather together in the evening and we'll read the same Psalm every night until everyone in the room has it memorized. The same one. And then huh. 
Yes, that's right. So like when my kids were younger, we did, we did Psalm 23 that way. We did Psalm eight. We did Psalm, uh, Psalm two that way. We just read that same Psalm over and over every night until we all know it by heart. And the kids, of course, they learned it faster than their mom and dad did. Um, and then, and then in my own personal experience, um, it has just been enormously beneficial to me to read big chunks of the Psalter all at one sitting. I mean, I, I would almost go so far as to say that that practice of reading big chunks of the Bible in sequence has more than anything else helped my understanding of the scriptures. Hmm. All right. Uh, the book is Psalms, Volume 1 and 2, an Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary. Professor Hamilton, thank you for joining us. Mark, thanks so much. Great to be with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.